months ago, I got a text message and I sat with somebody in a hospital room as they said, why is God doing this to me? And in that moment, I knew that compassion and bedside manner and ministry to people that are hurting involves a lot of listening and a lot of presence and a lot of tears. But there's also an element that we can walk through and go, like, does God actually have anything to say to explain to us what he's up to and what, how he wants us to think about suffering? When we are lying in a hospital bed, when we're sitting in a hospital waiting room wondering what the results of the test are going to be, when we are the ones that go to work every day with a heavy heart and upset stomach and go, how long is this going to go on? When we are lonely and say, God, is it always going to be this way? Is it always going to hurt? But I, I, and so in that moment, I was like, there, there needs to come a time where we talk. What does the Bible have to say? What does God have to say in the silence to us? from that place. And so I put it in the back of my mind and on the preaching schedule for, the, for 2020, we need to talk about suffering because so many of us are either suffering right now, we've been suffering, or we're going to be suffering. And we need to know actually not just, hey, somebody's going to be here and they're going to cry with us and they're going to hold our hands, but what, that God actually has some good news to say to us from that place. And so we're starting a new series called God Why. God Why, from that place. My, this, this message could be for people in two different groups. You could be the one that's lying in bed looking at a ceiling fan saying, God, why? Why is this happening? What are you doing? Help me to understand why this is so hard. What, God, help me understand. So you might be in that, in that painful category saying, God, why? Or you could be the one that's in the category where you need to be prepared for suffering that will come. You might be the one that's actually walking with people that are hurting and so this might be something that's actually just something coming in to strengthen and prepare you for something that's down the road that will come one day or that you're, as you walk through suffering with other people. You could be somebody in one of those two different groups. We're going to be spending this series in the second half of Romans chapter 8 simply because I don't want this to just be, hey, let's have some helpful psychological tips about the stages of grief. That can, there can be some help to the, some of those kinds of things. But I don't know about you, but whenever I'm struggling, and when I am hurting, and when I'm suffering, and when it is agony, I actually want to hear God's voice. Not just somebody saying, hey, here's some helpful tips on how to get through this. Look at what God might be up to. I, want to, I actually just want to hear the voice of God. And the one place that we can know that we're hearing that is from His Word. And so we're going to go, and we're going to just kind of slowly marinate in Romans chapter 8 because from that, we get to hear the voice of God in the middle of our suffering. So go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The way I describe this series is it's more one sermon in four parts rather than four separate sermons because we don't really understand Romans 8 unless we understand the whole thing. Somebody might come and offer some some helpful advice to us when we're hurting from Romans chapter 8. But I don't think that we can just pick out a verse and it's going to somehow minister to our hearts unless we hear from all of them. And so we're going to slowly be going through in the next four weeks Romans chapter 8. Whether that's because you're suffering and need to hear the voice of God or because you will be suffering and need to hear the voice of God. What often happens when I suffer and I imagine it does for you, is I, I begin to get tunnel vision 
in the middle of suffering so that all I can see is the pain and how can I fix this? How can I end this? How can we move on? And so Romans, the beginning of Romans, the second half of Romans 8, verse 18 through 25 is what we're going to be looking at today, begins to address us in the middle of that tunnel vision. Romans 8, verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our pain, in the middle of the pain of the world that we live in, you speak. And so I pray through this sermon that you would speak very clearly. God, I pray that you would draw our eyes to that place that all creation is right now fixing its eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 8. Verse 18 calls us and says, I consider, I count that our present sufferings, that the agony I am currently experiencing does not even compare to the glory that's going to be revealed in me. I, for I consider that the present agony I'm living with doesn't hold a candle to the glory that will be revealed in God's people. Well, what God, what Paul is doing here through Paul is drawing our eyes to this moment that glory is going to be revealed, not which, what we would expect glory to be revealed to us, but glory to be revealed in us. Paul says, I consider that our present agonies, our present sufferings, do not even compare with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And then he gives us, in the following verses, he's going to give us four reasons to look beyond the agony to God's promised and incomparable glory in you. Verse 18 through 25 lays out four reasons that the glory that God is going to be revealing from in us, from the inside out, in this one moment, doesn't even compare to the agony that we are dealing with. It doesn't set it aside and say it's not agony and it's not suffering, but that God has this promised incomparable glory. And then he, draw, he says, draw your eyes to this moment. Fix your, verse 19 gives us this first reason. Fix your eyes on what creation is fixing its eyes on. Verse 19 says, fix your eyes on what creation is fixing its eyes on. Verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the revelation of the children of God, your translation may say. It says that creation, all of creation right now, is fixing its eyes on that moment. Like all of creation, the, the animals and the lakes and the trees and all of the things in creation right now is sitting on pins and needles on the edge of its seat eagerly waiting to see what God's people are going to be like. All creation is right now fixing its eyes, waiting eagerly, believing that when the people of God are revealed in all of their glory, then it's going to be worth it. It's the, verse 19 gives us, why did our present sufferings not compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to us? Because the glorious creation that we live with the glorious creation that we go on trips to look at is actually waiting right now to see what God is going to reveal in and through us 
when God is done with the work in us and through us. All creation, those, the glorious animals and the, the, the Grand Canyon and the mountains and the oceans and the ocean depths right now is sitting on pins and needles eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, for the people of God to be revealed. And so the call in this is, can we fix our eyes on the same thing that creation is fixing its eyes on? Because if you're like me and we, we get into tunnel vision and we begin to go, this is, this, this is all that I can experience. This loneliness is all I'm ever going to know. This pain is all I'm ever going to know. This despair and this depression and this estrangement is all I'm ever going to know. This God calls us in the middle of suffering. One day a glory is going to be revealed. Can you sit on the edge of your seat waiting and watching for that with eager expectation? Because the creation that we love, the creation that we long to look at is actually on bins and needles because it knows that God is up to something in His people. We like to take our kids to the zoo. And yesterday we took our kids for the first time this season because it's been so cold to the Milwaukee Zoo. And we're going around and looking at these glorious animals and we come around a corner and see a tiger, a Siberian tiger, wandering through the snow, making its calls. And everybody kind of stops and looks at it. And it reminded me of a, a zoo we'd been at previously. And we were members, so we knew where everything was laid out. And we got to this, this one point looking across the giraffe enclosure, and I, I knew that the lion was over there. And the lion began roaring. And this is the first time I'd ever seen a lion roar in person because lions usually sleep 22 hours a day, which is most of the time that we're in the zoo. And th but this lion that day began roaring, and everybody within earshot stopped to look at the lion as he was roaring. Because th there's... It's kind of hard to explain, but there's nothing more majestic than seeing a lion standing on a rock roaring. And so everybody stops to see this glorious moment. The lion in all of its glory. This passage says that that lion and all of creation, even the most glorious things that we can think of, is sitting on pins and needles waiting to see what God is actually going to reveal in you doesn't right now maybe feel like it as you gripped by anxiety as you grip as you're gripped by fear as you're as you're gripped by despair and depression as you're gripped by the circumstances of life when you can't pay the bills and you don't know where the money's going to come from and you say this suffering is too great i don't know how to go on this passage says can you fix your eyes on that moment and that that time that god's glory is going to be revealed in you because nothing compares to that not lions in all of their glory not creation at its very best not the sun moon and stars everything is waiting to see the unveiling of the children of God. So will we fix our eyes on what creation fixes its eyes on? If you're lonely, will, can you begin to say, I'm not going to fix my eyes on when I'm no longer lonely. I'm going to fix my eyes on the glory that is to be revealed in and through me. If right now your suffering is suffering the shame and guilt and disappointment of failure, can you begin to fix your eyes not on the end, not on a success that can overshadow failure, but on a moment where glory 
does not even compare to the shame and guilt that comes from failure. If you're right now facing a medical diagnosis that you do not know what it looks like, instead of fixing your eyes on a, on a, simply on a healing, can you actually fix your eyes on a glory that is actually better? It does not even compare to the sufferings of our present time. Can we fix our eyes on what creation itself fixes its eyes on? Verse 20 lays out the second reason that we are called to look beyond the agony to God's promised incomparable glory in us. Verse 20 calls us to fix our eyes on the freedom and the glory that is coming. Verse 20. And you guys can go to a blank screen. I didn't put those on their screen. For the creation was subjected to frustration, to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Paul is staying in this place and says that creation itself was subjected to futility and bondage. That the pain and the difficulty of, the, of life in creation, the earthquakes and the viruses, the tsunamis and the floods... The disasters of the natural world that we look to is a, is a world that is subjected to futility and bondage in hope that one day it will be set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Not just, hey, one day things are going to be remade, but one day creation itself will be free from the afflictions of tsunamis and floods and viruses, of fires of heat and drought. One day creation will no longer be bound to those things. And the moment that that happens is when it comes into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This call, fix your eyes on the freedom and glory that's coming in us, not just in the world. Can we fix our eyes on a moment that is so much better and so much glorious? If you are like me and you live with this difficulty and disappointment, despair and depression, how long is this bondage going, going to go on? One day we will be set free and when we are set free, creation will be set free. I had a science class one time, and the professor was telling us that science itself is a part of pointing us to, towards God and towards understanding God's work in the world. And so he, was, he, he called us to constantly pay attention to the fact that creation itself, as the Bible says, teaches us about God and points us to the fact of a creator. And one time as he was telling us something about Something. Something having to do with stars. I said, what does this tell us about God? What does this, this tell us about God? And he said, this moment when entire surfaces of stars and planets, I'm sorry, it wasn't stars, it was planet. When the entire surface of planets were remade in one moment, points us to the futility and bondage of creation, the cripplingness of creation because of our sin. The, 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 the futility and bondage of creation as stars and surfaces, as, as tsunamis hit and waves come in, as fires rage and destroy homes and forests, as diseases ravage our bodies, it points us to this futility and this bondage. 
But creation is waiting for the day that one day it will be set free because we've been set free. So the call in this passage, how can we look beyond the agony? How can we look beyond the agony to God's promised incomparable glory in us? It's because we fix our eyes on the freedom that's coming. We fix our eyes on glory that is coming in us, not just out there, that God is actually going to produce a glory and freedom in us that then creation begins to match. Revelation 7 points us to this. This reality, what is that glory and freedom looks like? It's a moment when every tear is wiped away from our eyes, when there is no sadness and when there is no hunger anymore. There is a, a day of glory and freedom coming. Can we fix our eyes on that moment of freedom and glory? Paul tells us freedom is coming. Freedom is coming for those that are facing crippling despair and depression. Freedom will one day come. You may have experienced some freedom in this life, but there is a day coming where the crippling despair and anxiety and depression and fear does not compare to the glory and freedom that God is producing right now. That one day bondage will give way to freedom. And so can we fix our eyes on that moment? can't really fit that into a picture or a meme or a greeting card. You can't pick, put in a greeting card this picture of the freedom that's coming. But God calls us, can you fix your eyes there? Can you fix your eyes on that moment when the agony does, won't compare to the freedom that you enjoy? The third reason that we are called to look beyond our agony at God's promised incomparable glory Verses 22 and 23 tell us that we are called to fix our eyes on the fullness of redemption. We do not have our redemption in full, and so we have to fix our eyes on the fact that one day it will be full. Verse 22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, or the down payment of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. God says we, the, the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, all the way up until now, looking for the day that this is going to be born in full, this glory and this freedom. But not only creation is doing that, but we also we groan inwardly, even though we have the first fruits, the down payment of the Spirit. That God has saved those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ. We have the first fruits and down payment already. But we don't have the full thing. We don't have, we have that down payment. We have a little bit of how glorious it's actually going to be, but we do not have the fullness of redemption, the redemption of everything about us, the redemption of our bodies. God is calling us, this isn't everything that I have for you. Why are we called to look beyond the agony to God's promised incomparable glory? Is because he says, I haven't given you everything I have in mind yet. I, don't have, I haven't given you everything that comes with your salvation yet. It will come one day. I'm reminded that the prosperity gospel says, if God saves you, then you get it all right now. And right here, God says, no, I'm not giving you everything right now. The prosperity gospel says, well, if Jesus loves you and saves you, then you should be healthy and wealthy and successful and everything in your life should be good. But Paul says, no, we have a down payment. We have a down payment. And right now we are living with agony, but one day the glory will not compare when we have our inheritance in full. 
And so when somebody calls us and when our hearts call us to say, if Jesus loves me, then I should have the whole thing. No, God says, I've given you a down payment, but you cannot even imagine how glorious the rest of the promise is going to be. This call to go further in, further into God's redemption and salvation. That I don't have the whole thing right now, and I will not get it until God produces glory and freedom and redemption in full in me. So he calls us to fix our eyes on the fullness of redemption. Uh, not, Not just limiting it to one little piece. Oh, this is enough. This is good enough, and I can be happy with my salvation. No, God says your salvation is bigger than you can even imagine. I'm reminded in... I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. In the final book, The Last Battle, there is this constant refrain that as they go into the kingdom, it's a constant invitation further up and further in. You've not arrived. There's more to come. There is more to come. Keep going. Don't stop and just act like this is good enough. Keep going further up. Keep going further in. And right here, in this passage that says right now you are dealing with present agony, with present suffering. You want to give up. You cannot imagine it ever getting better. No, go further up and go further in. The redemption is much bigger and much better than you are currently experienced. Don't give up. Keep running. Keep going forward. So why is our present suffering not worth comparing? Because right now all you have is a down payment and it's going to get better and it's going to get more glorious, and it's going to get more freedom. We don't have our redemption in full, and so we have to instead fixing our eyes on the day that we will have it in full. The fourth reason that this passage calls us to look beyond our current agony to God's promised incomparable glory in us is because we are called to fix our eyes on God's process. We are called to suffer in hope just like we were saved in hope. Verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul says, you were saved in hope. You are actually standing right now in God's salvation. And the way that you were saved is as you turned away from sin, taking Jesus only and saying, God, all I can hope for is your salvation. We were saved in hope with a forward look without being able to grasp and hold it all in. And Paul says, just as you were saved in hope, so you were called to suffer in hope. This is God's call, is to actually look to Him for salvation and then moment by moment as we suffer, turn our eyes to Him and say, I don't have it now, but I trust that you do and that you will actually give this to me. That you're not holding it out because you're stingy, because you're a bad father, because you do not care about me. You're holding it out there and you call me to trust. And so just as I trusted you when I was saved, so I'm going to trust you in this suffering. That is the, the call. We are called to suffer in hope just like we were saved in hope. Then in verse 25, this is what he says. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That word patiently is the same word that he's using when he says that creation is waiting with eager expectation. Creation is waiting eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. And so here in verse 25, 
It's not a patient, ho-hum, I'll be patient, it's not a big deal. It's not a, oh, well, maybe it'll come someday. We all know people that are patient, people that patience comes easily to them, and they don't grasp at things, and they don't get frustrated, but they also never get too excited. We call them patient. No, this kind of patience is that I am going to sit on the edge of my seat in the middle of this suffering and look towards God who has promised glory and freedom to me. That I am suffering in hope, not resigned to it, relaxed as if it's not a big deal. Instead, I am going to suffer on the edge of my seat because my eyes are fixed on the moment that God gives me everything He promised. So we are called to salvation in hope. We are called to suffer in hope because our eyes and our faces are fixed on God and the future. We are not satisfied right here, right now with this. Instead, I am going to long with eager expectation for the glory that God is going to reveal in me and in his people. I'm going to wait with eager expectation for freedom to come in me and in the creation. I'm not going to be resigned to suffering. Instead, I'm going to, I'm going to be an eager as I look to God in the middle of this. So this passage says, look beyond the agony. To God's promise, incomparable glory in you. It speaks to those of us that get tunneled vision and say, until this gets fixed, I won't do anything else until this suffering ends. I can't go any farther. This calls us and says, no, can you please have, take that tunnel vision and put it in a different place? Can you take that tunnel vision and put it on God's promises? Can you take that tunnel vision and put it on incomparable glory that means freedom for the world? Can you get, take your eyes from the suffering to the freedom of the glory of the people of God? So we read this passage, and I don't know about you, but when, when I suffer, and as I suffer, I don't do any of this very well. I'm the one that rages, that weeps. I'm the one that shakes my fist at God and says, how long, O oh Lord? When are you going to change this? When are you going to fix this? And so this passage that calls us to suffer in hope is actually just a condemnation if you're like me. It's a passage that just says, look, look at all the ways that you don't suffer faithfully. Where is the hope for us? Where is the hope for those of us that struggle and cry and rage in the middle of suffering? This passage points us to Jesus. Because I have no record of righteous suffering on my own. And so Jesus himself, who left his glory, came and cloaked himself in the human form. The Bible says that there was nothing about him that was good and attractive that led men to come to him. But Jesus cloaked himself in our suffering and yet suffered faithfully with his face toward his father saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? Never once turning his back and raging against him, but instead turning his face constantly and saying, God, I trust you. I trust that one day glory is coming. God, I trust you that you will raise me from the dead. God, I trust you that this is worth it. And so you and I are invited to have the record of Jesus in his suffering. We're not just called to suffer better. We're actually called to accept a record and then with his power begin to suffer with our faces toward him. 
Knowing that there is nothing that we can do that would make him uh, disappointed and turn his back on us. We have his perfect record in suffering because Jesus suffered righteously in my place and gave himself for you. So that all who turn away from sin and trust in Christ get his record in suffering and then get his power to suffer with our face in the same direction towards the Father and towards the incomparable glory that he promises to reveal in us. And so suffering is not a test of our righteousness. It's instead an invitation to walk in his righteousness and in his power, in his direction. So we come here. Many of you suffering or having suffered a ton in this last year. Many of you facing suffering in the coming year and in the coming years. Pain that will not let up, pain that will not end, uncertainty that will not change. And this passage calls us to fix our eyes and begin to imagine not just a better week and not just a better year, but actually a glorious future where freedom, where we have freedom from suffering and freedom from agony, where we have freedom from guilt and from shame, from despair and anxiety, freedom from loneliness, freedom from all of the questions. And so our, we're called not to just imagine something a little bit better this week. We're called to imagine something so much incredibly better. Looking beyond our agony towards God's promised incomparable glory. Not for us, but actually in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you call us to fix our eyes on the place that all of creation fixes its eyes and its hopes. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.